0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 27th of October for the listening week that begins the 28th and your reader's name is Susan Shirey beginning this week with some tributes to Richard Roundtree, who passed recently. Following that, some international articles, which will be followed by other articles of interest from theroot.com and other sources. First, from the New York Times. This was posted... October 24th, written by Anita Gates. Richard Roundtree, star of Shaft, is dead at 81. While indelibly tied to the role that made him famous in 1971, he remained active for more than four decades afterward. Richard Roundtree, the actor who redefined African-American masculinity in the movies when he played the title role in Shaft, one of the first black action heroes, died on Tuesday at his home in Los Angeles. He was 81. His manager, Patrick McKinn, said the cause was pancreatic cancer, which had been diagnosed two months ago. Shaft, which was released in 1971, was among the first of the so-called black blaxploitation movies, and it made Mr. Roundtree a star at 29. The character John Shaft is his own man, a private detective who jaywalks confidently through moving Times Square traffic in a handsome brown leather coat with the collar turned up, sports a robust, dark mustache somewhere between walrus-style and a downturned handlebar, and keeps a pearl-handled revolver in the fridge in his Greenwich Village duplex apartment. As Mr. Roundtree observed in a 1972 article in the New York Times, he, quote, is a black man who is for once a winner. In addition to catapulting Mr. Roundtree to fame, the movie drew attention to its theme song, written and performed by Isaac Hayes, which won the 1972 Academy Award for Best Original Song. It described Shaft as a sex machine to all the chicks, a bad mother, and the cat who won't cop out when there's danger all about. Can you dig it? The director Gordon Parks's gritty urban cinematography served as punctuation. A fictional product of his unenlightened pre-feminist era, Shaft was living the Playboy magazine reader's dream, with beautiful women available to him as willing, even downright grateful, sex partners, and he did not always treat them with respect. Some called him, for better or worse, the Black James Bond. Mr. Roundtree played the role again in Shaft's Big Score in 1972, which bumped up the chase scenes to include speedboats and helicopters and the sexy women to include exotic dancers and other men's mistresses. In that movie, Shaft investigated the murder of a numbers-runner, using bigger guns and ignoring one crook's friendly advice to keep the hell out of Queens. 1973's Shaft in Africa, filmed largely in Ethiopia, the character posed as an indigenous man to expose a crime ring that exploited immigrants being smuggled into Europe. The second sequel lost money and led to a CBS series that lasted only seven weeks, but the films had made their impact As the film critic Maurice Peterson observed in Essence magazine, Shaft was the first picture to show a black man who leads a life free from racial torment. Richard Arnold Roundtree was born on July 9, 1942. Some sources say 1937. In New Rochelle, New York, the son of John and Catherine Watkins Roundtree, his parents were identified in the 1940 census as a butler and a cook in the same household. Richard played on New Rochelle High School's undefeated football team and after graduating in 61, attended Southern Illinois University on a football scholarship, but he dropped out of college in 63 after spending a summer as a model with the Ebony Fashion Fair, a traveling presentation sponsored by Ebony Magazine. The news and culture publication aimed at black readers at the time Mr. Roundtree moved back to New York, worked a number of jobs, and soon began his theater career, joining the Negro Ensemble Company. His first role was in a 1967 production of Howard Sackler's The Great White Hope, starring as a fictionalized version of Jack Johnson, the early 20th century's first black heavyweight boxing champion. A Broadway production starring James Earl Jones opened the next year and won three major Tony Awards and the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. After Shaft, Mr. Roundtree made varied choices in movie roles. He was in the the All-Star Ensemble cast of the 1974 disaster movie Earthquake, appearing alongside Charleston Heston and Ava Gardner, among others. He played the title role in Man Friday in '75 a vibrant, generous, ultimately more civilized partner to Peter O'Toole's 17th-century explorer Robinson Crusoe. On television, he played Sam Bennett, the rayfish carriage driver who courted Kizzy, Leslie Uggams, in the acclaimed miniseries Roots in 1977. That show was transformational, Mr. Roundtree said in an ABC special celebrating its 25th anniversary. He said, you got a sense of white Americans saying, "Damn, that really happened." Mr. Roundtree's name remained associated with the 1970s, but he was just as busy during the next 4 decades. He was an amoral private detective in a five-episode story arc of Desperate Housewives. 2004, appeared in 60 episodes of the soap opera Generations, 1990, and played Booker T. Washington in the 1999 television movie Having Our Say, The Delaney Sisters' First 100 Years. After the year 2000, when he was pushing 60, he made appearances in more than 25 TV series, including Heroes, Being Mary Jane, and Family Reunion. In 2020, Mr. Roundtree starred as a fishing boats, gray-bearded captain in Haunting of Mary Celeste, which was a supernatural maritime movie mystery. Mr. Roundtree married Mary Jane Grant in 1963. They had two children before divorcing in '73. In 1980, he married Karen M. Sierna. They had three children and divorced in 1998. He is survived by four daughters. And at least one grandchild. The Shaft character, with Hollywood alterations, endured. Samuel L. Jackson starred as a character with the same name, supposedly the first John Shaft's nephew, in a 2000 sequel titled Shaft. In 2019, another Shaft was released, also starring Mr. Jackson was now said to be the original character's son, with Jesse T. Usher as his son, J.J. J. Shaft. Like the 2000 Shaft, it also included Mr. Roundtree and the cast. That film felt something like a buddy cops movie, a comedy, pardon me, but the smartest thing it did was to take Mr. Roundtree, quote, bald with a snowy white beard, and turn him into a character who's hotter and cooler than anyone around him, and whose spirit is spry and tougher than leather. Adding to the tribute excerpts from the Washington Post article, along with movies including Cotton Comes to Harlem from 1970 and Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song from 71, Shaft helped convince Hollywood executives that black action movies could be extremely profitable kick-starting the genre known as black exploitation, in which black characters took on cops, gangsters, and the white establishment in dozens of movies, often to a soundtrack of funk and soul. Mr. Roundtree wasn't entirely comfortable with the label, a portmanteau of black and exploitation. "'I've always viewed that as a negative,' he said. "'Exploitation. Who's being exploited?' he said in a 2019 interview with the New York Times, he went on, but it gave a lot of people work. It gave a lot of people entree into the business, including a lot of our present-day producers and directors. Improbably, studio executives at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer had initially planned to cast white actors for Shaft. Parks insisted on a black lead, later saying he wanted to give viewers a hero they hadn't had before parentheses the character still contained echoes of other cinematic heroes movie posters proclaimed that shaft was hotter than bond cooler than bullet i know a shafts pardon me i know shafts a fantasy person a fictional person but the image kids see of him on the screen is of a black man who is for once a winner mr roundtree told the times in 1972 recalling how he had been mobbed by admirers at a Washington high school where some fans tried to take his leather jacket. For many viewers, the character of Shaft was aspirational, representing a person who defied the white establishment and lived by his own rules. Mr. Roundtree said the role offered him a window into another reality, one in which he didn't face the daily slights and injustices of life as a black man. I was acutely aware of when I would go into department stores and feel the shadow of being followed, he said in 2019, and then I'd be recognized, and all of a sudden it would turn. I thought, oh man, there it is. I was acutely aware of that turn. If I were not the actor who played John Shaft, I would be trailed to the dressing room, monitored, or stripped. That's the truth of the matter." At six foot two and two hundred pounds, Mr. Roundtree played as an end on his high school football team. He dropped out after two years after receiving a football scholarship to Southern Illinois University. He said he was tired of dealing with racist storekeepers and opposing players who called him the N-word and Then he returned to New York, selling suits at Barney's and touring the company as a model with the ebony Fashion Fair before deciding to become a star. For 5 decades he remained a prolific and in-demand screen actor, appearing in nearly 160 movies and television shows, even as he was often typecast as detectives and authority figures, usually ones who were not nearly as cool as Shaft. Mr. Roundtree's curse was that he appeared on the scene when there were room, pardon me, when there was room for representations of only one type of black man, the avatar of inner-city aplomb said film critic Elvis Mitchell in a 2000 article for the Times. He played a motorcycle daredevil in the blockbuster disaster film Earthquake. The noble title character in Man Friday and Burt Reynolds' gumshoe partner in the crime comedy City Heat He once said that not a day went by that he wasn't approached by someone who quoted from Shaft or its theme song. It could be tiring, but at the same time, he said, what else would I be doing? I'm still here. A lot of my friends and associates are no longer here or no longer in the business, and I'm still gainfully employed. So keep it moving, Roundtree. Next, some excerpts from an article from Yale Environment 360 good news from climate arena pardon me and do i have an author here written by fred pierce this was published in june as africa loses forest its small farmers are bringing back trees the loss of forests across africa has long been documented but recent studies show that small farmers from senegal to ethiopia to malawi are allowing trees to regenerate on their lands, resulting in improved crop yields, productive fruit harvests, and a boost for carbon storage. For decades there have been reports of the deforestation of Africa, and they are true. The continent's forests are disappearing, lost mainly to expanding agriculture logging and charcoal making, but the trees maybe not according to new satellite data analyzed by artificial intelligence and a growing body of on-the-ground studies. The new research is finding ever more trees outside forests, many of them nurtured by farmers and sprouting on their previously treeless fields. Across the continent from Senegal and Niger in the west to Ethiopia in the east and Malawi in the south, Smallholder farmers are rejecting government advice that trees should be expunged from fields because they get in the way of growing crops. Instead, they are allowing previously suppressed trees to regenerate on their land, to improve soils and crop yields, to provide harvests of fruit, fuel wood, and fodder for their livestock, and ultimately to achieve a better life for their families. As large areas of farmland across Africa turn from brown to green, the results are also good for local economies, offering an easy and cheap way to intensify their farming and increase output, as well as benefiting biodiversity and the global climate. An acre of growing trees on farmland captures and stores up to four tons of carbon from the atmosphere each year, say researchers. The latest published evidence of Africa's resurgent farmland trees comes in the first ever detailed analysis of satellite images of the continent, carried out at a scale that can identify individual large trees outside of forests. These often previously unmapped trees are not in plantations. They are mostly natural trees scattered across savanna, grasslands, croplands, and pastures. Forests cover some 21% of Africa, according to the UN Food and Agricultural Organization. Most are in the Congo Basin, home to the world's second-largest rainforest after the Amazon. But adding in non-forest trees visible to this AI system increases the figure for tree cover to close to 30%, depending on precise definitions. This dramatic good news about the continent's tree cover as seen from space, may itself be a serious underestimate of the change going on across the plains of Africa, according to other researchers. They say that the algorithm used by the colleagues of the previous study may spot bigger trees, but fails to count the huge number of smaller trees that have been mapping on the continent's farms that they have been mapping, pardon me, on the continent's farms by using a combination of human visual analysis and remote sensing images and simply driving around and counting trees. Chris Rage, a dry land restoration specialist at the World Resources Institute in Washington, D.C., has seen firsthand how millions of farmers across Niger, southern Mali, and Ethiopia have begun nurturing natural regrowth of hundreds of millions of trees from long-suppressed roots beneath their fields. This is often known as Farmer-Managed Natural Regeneration, FMNR. The story of the outside world's discovery of Africa's unmapped trees began in the fragile farmlands of of southern Niger, a landlocked nation in the Sahel region on the fringe of the Sahara Desert. Trees were once a natural feature of these arid lands, and many traditional pre-colonial farming systems incorporated them their roots often remain in the soil. But farmers had long been taught by colonial and government authorities to remove sprouting trees from their fields each year before planting crops to make plowing easier. During droughts in the 1980s, as warnings about desertification in Africa gained global attention, many of these treeless landscapes seemed destined to turn to desert. But then farmers began to change tack disregarding expert advice and allowing tree seedlings and roots to grow unmolested one story widely told in the villages of niger oh pardon me i'll start that paragraph over with correct pronunciation one story widely told in the villages of niger is that the transformation began when two young farmers returned late to their fields after working during the dry season at a distant mine with the rains already starting, they planted their crops without first clearing their fields of vegetation. To everyone's surprise, a few months later, this apparent indolence resulted in better crop yields than their neighbors. The next year, other farmers in the small remote village of Sondag- Dansaga, pardon me, copied them with similar results. Soon, dozens of other villages across Zinder and Maradi provinces joined in, trees began growing wild widely pardon me amid their crops raïj was among the first outsiders to visit and see how the land had been transformed and that happened by chance he said in 2004 i drove 500 miles east from niger's capital niamey and i thought bloody hell there are trees everywhere he remembers it was a total change since my first visit 20 years before He and others have estimated that there are now some 200 million more trees across a previously almost treeless landscape of some 12.5 million acres in southern Niger. To explore the extent of this transformation, Raij teamed up with Tapan, who had access to remote sensing images, and since then the pair have watched FMNR being adopted, apparently independently, in many other countries across the continent. Gary Tapan, a geographer at the U.S. Geological Survey, has mapped a dramatic increase in tree cover on farms in Malawi, Senegal, Niger, and elsewhere. He used sample satellite images to estimate that there are about 1.4 billion trees on farms across sub-Saharan Africa more than three times, as many as were spotted by the automated system. The farmers especially cherish the winter thorn tree, which grows widely across Africa. That tree drops its leaves at the start of the rainy season, improving soil fertility and crop growth, then stays dormant as the crops grow, and so does not compete with them for water and nutrients. It is called the magic tree. In southern Mali, the 200 miles between the country's two largest cities is now almost all agroforest, says Raish, Similarly, the Sino Plain on the border with Burkina Faso is all stunningly beautiful, a dense parkland of trees mostly less than 20 years old. Tapan, meanwhile, was part of a research team in 1986 that produced what is still the most detailed map of vegetation in Senegal. He said, I found extensive increases in tree density on farms last year, FMNR now covers more than 6.6 million acres in Senegal. It's a major success story and shows that woody vegetation can regenerate in a handful of years, even in regions of low rainfall. Meanwhile, in Ethiopia, the view from the road for more than 100 miles south of Hawassa quote, almost looks as if you were traveling through forest, said Raish. In the areas of highest population density, the density of trees only grows. This traditional system of agroforestry practiced in particular by the Gedeo people has as its main crops Arabica, Arabica, pardon, Arabica coffee and inset, which produces a banana-like fruit with starchy stems and roots. Tapan estimates that as a result of the widespread adoption of FMNR, of farmland in Mali and Burkina Faso has trees dotted across fields. The figure rises to 50% in Niger, 65% in Senegal, and 70% in Malawi. Yet these trees remain largely ignored by conservationists, foresters, and governments. Raish says that at a recent meeting of African government officials held in Malawi, to discuss how to improve forest cover. No one, including the Malawian hosts, even mentioned the 8 million acres of cultivated land with on-farm trees across the country. So how many trees are there on Africa's millions of smallholder farms? In response to this question from Yale Environment 360, Tapan undertook a short assessment. He inspected Google Earth images, of almost 100 randomly chosen 25-acre agricultural areas from seven representative countries and he visually examined them for trees. And He found an average of 69 trees in each area. And he estimated that this contain this these cultivated areas contain a total of 1.4 billion trees and said you can round my number up or down a bit but I think the assumptions I used do actually give a reasonably reliable number it's a lot of trees. This narrative sounds counterintuitive the assumption has been that as populations grow in Africa poor farmers have no alternative but to clear trees to cultivate the crops they need to feed their families. But the truth is the opposite, says Raij. Farmers in areas with high population densities need to intensify agriculture on increasingly small plots of land. And to do that, they need to improve soil fertility. Allowing trees to grow on their land can be the easiest and cheapest way of achieving that. More trees will accelerate productivity and support biodiversity. They can help transform regions once known for droughts, famine, and poverty into areas with renewed potential for economic development. Next article comes from Travel Noir and was posted on October 13th by Rafael Pena. Black Genocide, the True History of the Whitening of Argentina In a striking metamorphosis, Argentina has become synonymous with whiteness in South America. The country reported a mere 0.365% of its population as Afro-Argentine in the 2010 census. Less than two centuries ago, however, the landscape was starkly different, with black individuals constituting over a third of the population in the year 1800. Argentina's tumultuous journey from a diverse Afro-Argentine enclave, enclave pardon me, to its current status as one of the whitest nations on the continent is a haunting tale of genocide and calculated devastation. This transformation reveals an unsettling past marked by the strategic suppression of a vibrant Afro-Argentine community, enforced by government policies and historical amnesia. Today, many Argentinians hold the erroneous belief that Argentina neither participated in the slave trade nor witnessed the presence of Afro-Argentinians as if they had left the country naturally Such misconceptions persist despite the historical evidence to the contrary. Former Argentine President Carlos Menem once shockingly declared, in Argentina blacks do not exist. That is a Brazilian problem. The prevalent perception both within and beyond Argentina is that of a predominantly white European society. Buenos Aires, the nation's capital, often earns the moniker Paris of Latin America in popular culture. However, this image is a product of the ugly racism that systemically erased Afro-Argentinians from the nation's fabric. The roots of this enigma trace back to the 16th century when the Spanish colonized Argentina. In this period, Spain relied heavily on enslaved Africans, Africans that first set foot in Rio de la Plata encompassing present day Buenos Aires, during the late 16th century. By the late 18th and early 19th centuries, black Africans constituted up to half the population in some provinces. Slavery, albeit officially abolished in 1813, persisted unofficially until the early 1850s. Coincidentally, this period marked the start of a precipitous decline in Argentina's black population the factors behind the disappearance. The sudden and profound disappearance of black Africans from Argentina is attributed to the confluence of factors, pardon me, a confluence of factors. The first is the war against Paraguay, spanning from 1865 to 1870. Thousands of black individuals fought in the military during these conflicts and other wars, resulting in significant losses the fatalities led to a considerable gender gap within the African population. This prompted unions between black women and white men, effectively diluting the black populace. In addition, many Afro-Argentines sought refuge in more welcoming political climates in neighboring Brazil and Uruguay. Another devastating factor was the outbreak of yellow fever in Buenos Aires in 1871, which claimed the lives of numerous locals. However, many sources point to a far darker and more sinister force at work, a covert genocide orchestrated by Domingo Faustino Sarmiento, who served as Argentina's president from 1868 to 1874 and played a pivotal role in decimating the Afro-Argentine population. Domingo Faustino Sarmiento, architect of genocide. Sarmiento staunchly advocated for white European racial purity and went to great lengths to eliminate Afro Argentines. He even devalued the mixed race Argentine cowboys known as gauchos, likening them to fertilizer. Sarmiento's diary entry in 1848 included the chilling statement In the United States, four million are black, and within twenty years will be eight million. What is to be done with such blacks? hated by the white race. Slavery is a parasite that the vegetation of English colonization has left attached to the leafy tree of freedom. During his presidency, Sarmiento instigated a systematic erasure of the African presence in Argentina through policy decisions that were harmful to black lives. He segregated the black community from their European counterparts, condemning them to inadequate infrastructure and health care, which facilitated their deaths during cholera and yellow fever outbreaks. Additionally, he forcibly recruited Afro-Argentines into the military, imprisoned them on minor or fabricated charges, and orchestrated mass executions. The culmination of these repressive policies, coupled with disease outbreaks and ongoing conflicts, nearly eradicated the black population by 1875 to the extent that the government failed to register African descendants in the national census. The Subtle Erasure of History In contemporary Argentina, the physical and metaphorical erasure of Afro-Argentines has left an indelible mark on the nation's identity and history. Some Argentines even believe that their country never participated in the slave trade, a form of cultural amnesia that negates the inconvenient black presence in Argentina. Even the tango, Argentina's most celebrated cultural export, has been stripped of its historical connection to black Argentines. The early dance-related art reveals African roots stemming from the former Kingdom of Congo. This extensive erasure... Encompassing historical, physical, and cultural dimensions is deemed a triumph by governmental leaders who have perpetuated the vision of Argentina as an all-white extension of Western Europe in Latin America. Moving on now to current events. This one comes from the Washington Post, written by Paul Butler, posted October 23rd. It's an opinion piece. The black prosecutors taking on Trump know what they're up against. Black prosecutors are having a moment in America of the three prosecutors who have charged the former president of the United States with crimes this year. Two of them, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg and Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fannie T. Willis, are African American. On top of that, Letitia James, New York's black attorney general, is pursuing a civil fraud case with the potential to crush the Trump Organization. These are historic cases, and the race of the people bringing them shouldn't matter, except that it clearly matters to Donald Trump, who has lambasted them all using racist dog whistles. To be sure, as my post-colleague Aaron Blake has cataloged, the former president harbors no love for any investigator or prosecutor focused on him, but Trump reserves a particularly race-inflected venom for the black government lawyers who threaten his liberty and wealth he calls Bragg a Soros backed animal and James a political animal. Quite a word, that. His nickname for James is Peekaboo, which rhymes with a racist slur. Trump never stops with the tropes. He lied that Willis was in a relationship with an alleged gang member she is prosecuting. In an email after Trump's indictment in Fulton County, his campaign said that Willis came from, quote, a family steeped in hate and highlighted the fact that her first name is Swahili. Trump repeatedly attacks Bragg, Willis, and James as, quote, racists. It's all a transparent attempt to rile up his base against black prosecutors who have the gall to focus on him. His incitements clearly aim to remind his supporters who the real criminals supposedly are, Black and brown folks. Trump seems to long for the days when black police officers in some jurisdictions would not arrest white people. Trump is drawing on an old vein of prejudice in the United States. As a black federal prosecutor, I got used to some people questioning my competency and taking umbrage when my defendants were elite whites. No one ever said directly I should stay in my place but a defense attorney told me that rather than investigating his client who was a white politician i should be prosecuting street crime in d c and like other black male prosecutors in the courtroom i was sometimes mistaken for the defendant my revenge against the haters was winning my cases I hope that Bragg and Willis's leadership in holding Trump accountable will inspire black people to become lawyers and to run for district attorney. As of 2015, approximately 95% of elected district attorneys are white, and a 2019 American Bar Association survey showed that just 5% of lawyers in the United States were black. These distressing numbers are a part of the problem that Trump thinks he can exploit. Because prosecutors are the most powerful actors in the criminal legal system, scholars and activists have emphasized the importance of having people of color in these roles. Bragg is the first African-American district attorney in Manhattan, and in recent years Chicago, Boston, and St. Louis uh, have also elected black district attorneys President Biden has prioritized diversity among federal prosecutors. Almost half of the U.S. attorneys he has appointed are black. So, black prosecutors are becoming more prominent, but that underscores another important point. The African Americans who do this work are no monolith. For all Trump's attempts to paint black prosecutors with the same broad brush, they unsurprisingly pursue quite different policies. Bragg and Willis, in particular, are a study in contrasts. The Manhattan District Attorney is part of the progressive prosecutor movement, which seeks to use prosecutorial discretion to reduce mass incarceration and racial disparities. Bragg's press release in People v. Donald J. Trump noted the, quote, solemn responsibility to ensure that everyone stands equal before the law. Willis, on the other hand, is a lock-em-up district attorney Her office used the same racketeering law that is the basis for the Georgia state charges against Trump and his 18 co-defendants in a case against dozens of black educators in a cheating scandal. The problem for Trump? Both Bragg's commitment to equal justice and Willis's tough-on-crime stance lead directly to the former president. Like any accused person, Trump deserves due process, and he's getting it many times over. Any black defendant who spewed Trump's violent rhetoric about judges, witnesses, and prosecutors would have been locked up by now. Some say the prosecutions of the former president are necessary but sad. But each of the four days this year when criminal charges were announced against the former president was a good day for democracy and for equal justice under the law. I'm proud that black prosecutors are leading the fight. Turning next to com. this next one, written by Angela Johnson, posted on the 27th. A nonprofit in Chicago helps black men heal their pain by giving them flowers. The Black Men Flower Project is on a mission to create community and provide support for black men. The tragic death of beloved, so-you-think-you-can-dance all-star Stephen Twitch boss put much-needed attention to the subject of mental health and suicide awareness among black men. According to the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, the suicide rate for young African-American men is more than three times that of African-American women. And while factors like access to health insurance and the stigma around mental illness in the black community are fundamental barriers for men getting the care they need, one of the biggest issues is the lack of culturally competent providers. According to the American Psychiatric Association, only 2% of psychiatrists and 4% of psychologists in the United States are black. But Robert Washington Vaughns believes a path to healing can be found in nature, and he's putting the idea into practice with an innovative way of giving black men their flowers. The Black Men Flower Project is a nonprofit organization on a mission to support black men's mental health and well-being. The idea was inspired by a Washington, pardon me by Washington Vaughns' experience in nature as a means of coping with his own diagnosed anxiety and depression. Using an online nomination form, black men in Chicago, Columbus, Ohio, and New Mexico can nominate other black men to have one-of-a-kind floral arrangements sent to them free of charge. Curated by local black-owned florists, the bouquets are intended to shatter stereotypes that prevent men from getting the help they need. While not intended to replace professional support and counseling, the creators believe the act of giving and receiving flowers opens up the lines of communication between black men and lets them know they are not alone. While black men are the only ones who can give and receive flowers, allies can support the organization through donations. Black men are suffering, designer and co-founder John Caleb Pendleton told People in an interview. Flowers have been a healing space for me. I want other black men to experience that. If you or someone you know needs help, please contact the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Next article written by Aliyah Wright. It was posted on the 20th. Why isn't the ebony alert system nationwide? Recently, Cali Governor Gavin Newsom signed the ebony alert system into law, the first state to notify the public when black children and women disappear. Gabby Petito, Natalie Holloway, Elizabeth Smart. These are names most Americans recognize when you talk about missing young women, but mention Kiera Coles who was also pregnant, Destiny Smothers, or Catherine Benet-Griffin, and their names may not be familiar at all. That's because when black women go missing, news coverage does too. In late September, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed the ebony alert system into law, becoming the first state to notify the public when black children and young black women between the ages of 12 and 25 disappear. It mirrors the Amber Alert System, which generates emergency alerts on smartphones and electronic road signs. It also encourages the media to share news when someone vanishes. But while this new system is a fantastic first step in alleviating racial disparities, when it comes to paying attention to missing black women and children, it it doesn't go far enough. Black people, black women, deserve better, way better, the Abony Alert System should be worldwide just like its predecessor. The AMBER Alert System, America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response, it stands for, was created in 1996 after nine-year-old Amber Hagerman was kidnapped and murdered in Arlington, Texas. According to the federal website amberalert.ojp.gov, The AMBER Alert System is actively used not just nationwide but in Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, Indian Country, and 31 countries globally. As of January 2, 2023, 1,127 children were successfully recovered through the AMBER Alert System, and 131 children were rescued because of wireless emergency alerts, states the website. Thousands of people are reported missing every year in the U.S., according to a statement on the website of the Black and Missing Foundation. And while not every case will be me—will get widespread media attention, the coverage of white and minority victims is far from proportionate. The real tragedy is that while black people comprise just 13% of the U.S. population, nearly 40% of those who regularly go missing are African-Americans, according to the U.S. Census reports. According to Black and Missing, of the 546,568 people reported missing in 2022, just 57% were white, including Hispanic, 39% were minorities, and 3% were unknown. Minorities who have vanished aren't even cataloged the same way in crime statistics. In 2022, there were 313,017 cases filed by the National Crime Information Center where the race of the reported missing was white, according to NCIC's website. It went on, In the same year, 18,928 people were missing whose race was unknown it's like no one is even bothering to note the racial breakdowns. That is another thing that needs to change. The fact is, thousands of people are reported missing every year in the United States, and while not every case will get widespread media attention, the coverage of white and minority victims is far from proportionate. I believe that was a repeat, according to the Black and Missing Foundation. When black girls and women go missing, the country doesn't come to a standstill the way it does when a white girl or a woman goes missing. Feminista Jones wrote in the Philadelphia Inquirer, she noted, while African American females make up less than 7% of the population, they account for about 10% of all missing persons, with an estimated 64,000 of them being missing at any given moment. If more Black women of color vanish and die from violence, why isn't that reflected in media coverage? The answer is simple: if you don't have blonde hair and blue eyes, Lynette Graybull of the Not Our Native Daughters Foundation said on her show, The Readout, to Joy Reid, "Our stories do not make it to the six o'clock news." She said, "What's the solution?" Newspapers, radio stations, television outlets, bloggers, and the black press, all of us need to care and become more inclusive in the coverage of all missing women, not just missing white women. It begins in newsrooms where diversity has always been an issue. But there are things you can do in addition to contacting legislators in your state and asking them to take the ebony alert system nationwide. If you're on social media sites, whether it's TikTok, a Facebook page, or black Twitter, going to black churches, speaking or teaching on college campuses or other venues, and you hear of a case of a missing woman, child, or person of color, share it, talk about it, tell your friends. If it happens in your neighborhood, call the local press and ask them to amplify it. And remember, even if that person vanished in New Jersey, it doesn't mean that person is still in the state. Their kidnapper may have taken them elsewhere. We must also urge Congress to create national legislation so everyone is forced to pay attention to what should be categorized as much more than just a horrific oversight. Here's a thought. Perhaps President Biden can take the ebony alert system nationwide with an executive order. Still reading from The Root. Next one by Angela Johnson, published on the 25th. Did you know a black designer was behind Jackie Kennedy's famous wedding gown? Now You See Me, an introduction to 100 years of black design, tells the stories of black artists that history forgot. When Jacqueline Beauvoir married then-Senator John F. Kennedy in 1953, it was her dress that stole the show. The silk taffeta gown with floral embellishments was featured on the cover of the New York Times and established the soon-to-be first lady as a style icon. But unlike most celebrity brides, the designer, black dressmaker Anne Lowe, didn't get nearly as much attention as the dress. If you had no idea, you're not alone. Charlene Primpe, writer, editor, and founder of A Vibe Called Tech, didn't either. I couldn't believe I had never heard of her, Primpe told British Vogue. I mean, how is it that one of the world's biggest fashion icons had a black designer creating so many of her clothes, and no one knew about her? It's like she's been completely erased. But Primpe whole hopes that her new book, Now You See Me, An Introduction to 100 Years of Black Design, will make sure more people know about Lowe and other black artists. The book, which is set to hit shelves in February 2024, celebrates black creatives like Lowe who have been largely overlooked throughout history, including fashion designer Zelda Wynne-Valdis, credited with designing the original Playboy bunny costume, and Jackie Orms the first black female cartoonist. Anne Lowe's client list was like a who's who of wealthy families including the Rockefellers and Roosevelts. And her designs were featured in high-end retailers, including Neiman Marcus, Henry Bendel, and Saks Fifth Avenue. But the talented dressmaker who learned from her mother and grandmother, who was a slave, never received her flowers. When asked in an interview who she was wearing at her wedding, Jackie Kennedy simply said, "'A colored woman dressmaker.'" Lowe shared her disappointment in a 1961 letter to Kennedy, writing, I realize it was not intentional on your part, but as you once asked me not to release any publicity without your approval, I assume that the article in question, and others, was passed by you. You know I have never sought publicity, but I would prefer to be referred to as a noted Negro designer, which in every sense I am... Any reference to the contrary hurts me more deeply than I can perhaps make you realize. Primpe hopes her book will encourage people to learn more about Lowe and other amazing yet often forgotten artists. She said, I want to ignite conversation again and create for others, perhaps in a small way, the moment I had when I first heard about Anne Lowe. And for what's probably the final article for this week, turning to the New York Times, this was written by Maya S. Cade, published October 17th. She was Oprah before Oprah. Alice Travis might not be a familiar name now, but in the late 1970s, she became the first black woman to host a nationally syndicated talk show. Alice Travis was a seasoned reporter when she auditioned in 1975 for the ABC show that would become Good Morning America. Travis, who was then 32, had already co-hosted two major market news shows, Panorama with Mari Povich in Washington, D.C., and AM New York. The black-owned weekly newspaper New York Amsterdam News once described her as one of the brightest and brainiest of the undiscovered TV personalities so she was unprepared for what she said a network executive told her after the audition. Quite frankly, your color is not to your advantage, Travis recounted over lunch in Manhattan this past summer. Shocking statements, but after a while they no longer shocked. Travis was among the first wave of black television newswoman, newswomen, hired nationwide, part of an early effort to diversify American newsrooms in the wake of the protests and racial conflicts of the 60s. While her rejection by the ABC morning show was painful, what she did next was groundbreaking. She became the first black woman to host her own national talk show, the syndicated, for you, black woman, Premiered in June 1977, the first national talk show created for a black female audience. From a set in New York studio designed to look like a comfortable living room, Travis discussed topics like self-fulfillment, relationships, beauty, politics, and parenting, as they applied specifically to black women, occasionally with notable figures. Her guests included Toni Morrison, Muhammad Ali, Florence Kennedy, and the actress Jane Kennedy. Then, pardon me, they all came on to discuss, pardon me, Muhammad Ali came on to discuss his relationships with women and his occasionally benighted attitudes about them. Travis told the New York Times, he's arrogant, chauvinistic, and delightful. In a way, she was Oprah before Oprah, a black woman discussing the news of the day and interviewing celebrities before a national TV audience. According to Charles Gerber, the son of For You, the For You creator Charles Gerber, Oprah Winfrey at one point thanked his father for putting the show on the air. Winfrey declined to comment for this article through a spokeswoman. Travis's TV career began with much promise but ended up being relatively brief she came up in an era when black anchor women seemed to be solidifying their place as part of the future of news programming. And at the height of her popularity in 78, Travis was broadcast to over 70 percent of black America. But she stepped away from the industry only a decade after her broadcast career began. As a black mass media researcher and the creator and curator of the Black Film Archive, I was stunned that I had never heard of Travis until I stumbled upon tapes of For You, Black Woman, earlier this year at the Library of Congress. People forget Alice's name, said Barry Kluger, who oversaw publicity for For You. He said For You undeniably broke ground even if the show and its host hadn't received their due credit. Travis believes the erasure of black cultural history is intentional. When you reduce the black experience to nothing but a reflection on slavery, that's what you get, she said. But she also made clear that she still lives by her former sign off sentiment the lady is black. What was once a kind of catchphrase has, in the time since, become a personal motto and a rallying cry. She said, she wrote in her email, to the author here. Let us rejoice in our wit and ingenuity. Let our behavior and bearing display the comportment expected of the women of substance who we are. And that brings us to the end of our hour for this week. And I cut that particular article a little short and will save it for the future to perhaps hear more about her But for now, thank you for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC Programming is brought to you in part by funding from the Quick Foundation. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.